in his name right now. Father, what a joy to join our voices together as your church and to have your name, the name of your son, the Lord Jesus, flow from us. We lift his name today. He is indeed worthy of our praise. Our Bible is worthy of our study. May your Holy Spirit encourage your church through the message. Now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I don't know if you have noticed. Um, I have noticed that there is a word being thrown around out there, um, often in the world of sports, and it is the word extreme. Extreme. And we kind of have that word in our vocabulary a little more than we used to, particularly in the area of adventure sports. Extreme sports are taking the world of adventure and some kind of a sport activity, taking it to the edge of what is perceived as high risk. That means putting your life on the line. This is actually pictures of the Gully River. Our guys are heading there tonight. And... Um, uh, it is it is extreme sports. They do it for the thrill. Um, I don't know why they do that. This is um, bike jumping, uh, BMX racing in the Red Rocks of Colorado. Why would you do that? Uh, because you you want that rush of adrenaline. It is taking you to the edge, the parameters, the limits of what you can produce. It usually involves uh, speed, height, risk, a high level of physical exertion, and it toys with death. Well, we are in Hebrews chapter 6. We're not talking about extreme sports, but I want to make clear as we conclude this warning passage of Hebrews 6 that God is talking specifically about extreme discipline. The passage is about believers, written to believers, and the writer is warning the recipient that there is, in God's sovereign oversight of his church, the actual capacity on his part to take them to the edge of death or even to use death as an extreme discipline. Now, here's what I want to do. I actually want us, as we remind ourselves of this section, that it is, number one in our outline, words of warning, I want us to actually go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 on our way to Hebrews chapter 6, and I want us to see what this looks like in real life. All right? I want us to take Hebrews 6, these words of warning, where extreme discipline. Listen, this is not riding your bike down the towpath. This is jumping your bike off of the mountain kind of discipline that he's talking about in Hebrews 6. I am am absolutely convinced he's talking to believers and he's talking about a, a rare capacity implemented by our Heavenly Father in his church to discipline us to the point where there is no return. He's done with us. I believe that's what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And so I want us to start there and look at a relatively familiar passage of Scripture. And I want you to see what this extreme discipline looks like in the church. 
we're then going to go back and remind ourselves of what the writer warned about this extreme discipline in Hebrews 6, and we're going to apply that in layers to 1 Corinthians 11 as a case study. So we're beginning with these words of warning, and we're going to do a case study in 1 Corinthians 11. Now, this is a communion passage, and you will recognize parts of it. You need to know that when the Apostle Paul, the mighty Apostle Paul, wrote this letter to the Corinthian believers, he was writing to this church that was absolutely broken and dysfunctional. We don't have time to review all of their dysfunction. Have you noticed how fun it is to review other people's dysfunction sometimes? We're not going to do that, but they are broken in almost every way they can be broken. One of the things that they're broken in is that they have been, they have been abusing the body and blood of the Lord Jesus in remembrance at the communion table and the love feast. They have been abusing that ceremony, indulging their flesh in a very worldly way in complete disregard for the finished work of Christ on the cross, which was basically rendering it useless to them. Now, The other thing you need to keep in mind is that I absolutely believe that the Apostle Paul is writing the letter, this first letter to the Corinthian church. He's writing to believers. You will see it in his language. And he's warning them of God's extreme discipline. Let's begin by picking it up at verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 11. Verse 17, I'm going to read relatively quickly, but it puts it in context of this matter of the Lord's table the body, the blood, the communion service, the love feast that they would enjoy, a big dinner that they would have together when they came together to celebrate and remind themselves in worship of the finished work of Christ on the cross. Now notice the Apostle Paul's language. 1 Corinthians 11, 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. (laughs) How would you like to get a letter from the mighty Apostle Paul? I do not commend you in this. You have issues because when you come together, it is not for the better, but it is for the worse. You are messed up. When you gather as a church, it doesn't benefit anyone. I don't commend you in this. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions, schisms among you, and I believe it in part... For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. That's a hard verse to uh, exegete, but the idea there is, I think, that one of the fallouts of their schisms is that at least we can identify the good guys from the bad guys. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. In other words, you think that you're coming to the Lord's Supper, but the way you do it, don't even call it the Lord's Supper. It's not the Lord's Supper that you're doing. For in eating, each one goes ahead without his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Now notice the ESV translates the first word of of verse 22. What? Exclamation point. So what is it? That's what? 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 What are you doing? Come on, people. So you see, in this era and time, there were... There was no real middle class. There was, there was a group of people who were more in wealth and who had resources, and there was basically the service class, people who worked as indentured slaves or um, they worked as servants, servant class. What would happen is 
The one group of people would get to church first, and on the night of their love feast, they would have a big spread of food, and they would go there really excited to chow down, gorge themselves, drink themselves drunk, and by the time the rest of the church came, there wasn't any food, there wasn't any of their wine left, which had alcoholic content, but was never intended to be uh, drank to the point where they could get drunk on it. And so they didn't even care about the rest of the body. So there were schisms, there was disregard, there was an absolute, uh, an absolute distortion of the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table, and communion. And that's what's going on. And the Apostle Paul says, I am not commending you in this. In fact, I really have problems. What? Are you kidding me? This is going on. Do you not have houses to eat, verse 22, and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? You have such disregard for the body of Christ. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Will not commend you in this. For I received from the Lord. Here's the part of the communion service that you recognize, because I use this passage quite a bit in communion. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In other words, what you do is a distortion. It's not reality. It's a disgrace. And I'm telling you what it is all about is what our Lord did on the night of the Passover before he went to the cross and he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. It was a metaphor. It was in remembrance of, it was symbolic. It was sacred. Do this in remembrance of me, verse 25. And then in the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Listen, you, Paul says, you're not showing up at this dinner to get first in line to make sure you get some of that stuff with the crunchy on the bottom and then the chocolate layer and then the vanilla layer and then the chocolate layer and then the Cool Whip layer with the sprinkles on top. That is not what this is about, people. This is about the broken body of our Lord Jesus. This is about the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for you, his church, his precious blood. And you're coming in here and eating and burping and getting drunk. Are you kidding me? What is wrong with you? For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is what believers do because we love Jesus. This is what believers do because we've been to the cross and we've been showered in the blood of Christ and my sin is taken away as far as the east is from the west and it is the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses me from all my sin, identifies me in Christ, the righteousness of Christ that was imputed on my behalf that allows me to stand in front of a holy God and he lets me into heaven and he has a plan of blessing, and he has his church, and he has his people, and you're there eating and gorging and getting drunk, and you don't even care about the body and blood of Christ. It's disgraceful. Whoever, therefore, he says in verse 27, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, listen to this, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. What does that mean? 
It means that if you don't do it in an appropriate manner, that you are guilty of putting him on the cross again. You are guilty of shouting with the crowds, crucify him. You are wasting the shed blood of Christ that cleansed you and made you his child. You're not even thinking about it. You're thinking about your gut, your taste buds. Let a person then examine himself then so and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup only upon examination. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body... I take that to be shorthand for what he just said above that, in the sentence above that. He said, you will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. I take it that that's what he's talking about. Verse 29 again, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body and blood of the Lord and drinks judgment on himself, that is why many of you are weak and ill. Listen to what he says. That is why many, not a few... A couple of men had brought a report to him, it says in chapter 16. They brought a report. He had been hearing things. There are many people sick at the church in Corinth. Not only that, not only are many of you weak and ill, but some of you have, your Bible might say, fallen asleep. The ESV says have died. Fallen asleep is a metaphor for believers in the Lord Christ when they die. So he's talking to believers, he's talking to the church, and he's saying God has exercised extreme discipline upon you for your abuse of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. For rendering it useless in a way. He says, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. You need to take care of judging yourself, otherwise God is going to judge you. And he will judge his church. That's a repeated theme in the New Testament. But if we judged ourselves, truly we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Hmm. So what I'd like to do, this is words of warning. This is a reality. This is a case study of extreme discipline on people because of their abuse and their disregard for the finished work of Christ because of the, their, their disregard for even paying attention to the substitutionary death of Christ on their behalf and just eating the food, indulging in the wine, creating schism in the body, with no thought at all for their salvation, he's speaking to save people who are being really careless about their salvation. And he said, some of you are sick because of that. And some of you can no longer return to repentance because you're dead and it's over and it is impossible for you to return to repentance because now you're dead. I take it that it's not all the time. I take it that all the people in the church aren't struck dead. I take it that some people only got sick, but then God permitted them to go on to maturity later, and others got sick and died, and God said, I'm done with you. That's it. And it was sin unto death, 1 John 5. So now let's go to Hebrews chapter 5 and 6, and let's remind ourselves of the warning passage of what we've been studying, and then let's apply it to the group in 1 Corinthians, because otherwise, I really don't know how to get my head around this. I really don't know what in the world have we just seen happen in Corinth. 
We saw God kill people, believers in Christ, brothers and sisters in the fellowship of believers. God killed them because they disregarded his body, his blood, his death, the reality of their salvation, and they just indulged themselves. They rather live like they lived in Egypt than enter into the promised land. Now listen, Corinth was written to believers, for believers. I believe the book of Hebrews was written to believers, for believers, about believers. The first section that we read was this warning session. This is the third warning section in our Hebrew study. And it begins with 5.11. Let's just read 5.11 through 14. About this we have much to say. Talking about the order of Melchizedek. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. You become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You see, one of the marks of maturity is that you distinguish good from evil. Okay, so with our notes in front of us, let's take our warning passage and let's see if we can apply this to the Corinthian believers and what we just read happened. It's stunning. People are sick in the church. People have died in the church. For some of them who have died, it is impossible for them to return to repentance. They fell away. God killed them. They can no longer repent. God's done with them. He went to heaven, but without any reward. Okay, so these are words of warning. Letter A, would you agree with me that the believers in Corinth had allowed themselves to be defined by spiritual immaturity, which is spiritually undisciplined? They were spiritually undisciplined. Would you agree with with me that that defines the Corinthian believers? Spiritually undisciplined. Gorging themselves with food. Imbibing in wine until they were drunk. That is an absolute lack of spiritual discipline. Which leads to ongoing, letter B, spiritual immaturity. Which leads to lack of discernment. When you're immature, you do not have discernment. Okay, so let's go back up, and in parentheses is where we're applying the principle from Hebrews 5 and 6 and the warning principle, the warning passage to the Corinthian believers. So first of all, the Corinthian believers were absolutely spiritually undisciplined. Isn't that what he warned the Hebrew believers about? You are dull of hearing. He bookends it and ends this warning passage with 6.12, where he says, and so that you may not be sluggish, Dull of hearing and sluggish is the exact same word in the Greek. That you, you, you are not paying attention and you're on the ABCs of your faith and you haven't matured and that's exactly what was wrong with the Corinthian believers. They had not matured. So the first thing we see is they were spiritually undisciplined, which then leads to ongoing, letter B, spiritual immaturity and lack of discernment, which leads to disobedience. But let's first take a look at Hebrews 5, 12 through 14, where he says to them, you need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk, verse 13, is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. 
You're immature. You're, you're sucking on a spiritual baby bottle, and you ought to be eating steak, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So a mature person distinguishes good from evil is the exact quote there. In their immaturity, they lost the ability to distinguish good from evil. They looked just like the Egyptians. They looked just like their pagan neighbors because in their lack of spiritual maturity, their lack of discipline, they had no discernment and they took on the trappings of everyone around them and they let the flesh rule. That leads to disobedience. Lack of discipline leads to lack of growth, which maintains immaturity, which leads to a lack of discernment, which will lead to disobedience, spiritual dysfunction, and a disregard for the blessings of God, which can in some cases lead then to letter D, to God's extreme discipline. Now remember, Back up under letter C, their disobedience was being pictured by the historical account at Kadesh Barnea, chapters 3 and 4. In Hebrews 3 and 4, it was all about couched in a historical memory of the Israelite believers who came out of Egypt, but because of their disobedience, their immaturity, their lack of growth, they wandered in the wilderness for 38 years without going into the promised land. Their immaturity and their and their lack of, um, of discernment led them to disobedience to the point that they even said, let's go back to Egypt. You know any Christians like that? Who long for the old days almost as they live their lives, they live like or long for returning to the Egypt of their own lives. Why would you do that when you're already in Christ? Why would you go backwards? And so they end up with this extreme discipline. So Numbers 14 and the warning of Hebrews 6, 1 through 8, he says, let us leave then the elementary doctrines of Christ, 6, 1, and go on to maturity. See, he's talking about believers. Don't stay in infancy. Grow. And then he gives these examples, not laying again the foundation of repentance, dead works, faith towards God, instructions about washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment, We covered those last week. He wanted them to move beyond these fundamentals. And he says in verse 3 then, and this we will do if God permits. So if you apply that to the first Corinthian believers, God did not permit some of those in the church who took lightly the body and blood of our Lord after a while, it became apparent that God judged them, took their lives, and he no longer permitted them to go on to maturity. They were done. God was done with them. Some were sick. I take it that they got well, and hopefully they learned their lesson and God permitted them to go on to maturity. That's what he's talking about in verse 3. That's a reflection back on verse 1. Let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity. And this we will do if God permits. What do you mean this we will do if God permits? If he doesn't strike you dead or let you go to your own carnality, your own Christian desert and you no longer care about growing. You don't take seriously the things of God. It is possible you are a believer. He's not talking about losing our salvation. And the picture is the Israelites wandering around. 
They just think about how beautiful it would have been. They come out of Egypt, and what a fantastic night that was. The Egyptians are throwing jewelry at them. They're out in the, they cross the Dead Sea. The Pharaoh's army is drowned. Moses is leading them on. They have a cloud of fire, a pillar, pillar, a cloud by uh, a day, a pillar of fire by night. The presence of God is indicated by that. And it was about 11 to 14 day walk over to the promised land where God was intending to take them. But because of their immaturity, because their dullness of hearing, and he's reflecting that upon them, of the Hebrew believers, don't be like them, dull of hearing, sluggish, immature. Because of that, what did they say? Oh, this will never do. And so even though God blessed them, and they could point out God's blessings, manna, quail, shoes that didn't wear out, clothing that didn't wear out, fire and cloud of the presence of God. The promised land was right there. They never entered the promised land. And finally, because of their grumbling, their disobedience, and their dismay before the Lord, and even their desire to go back to Egypt, they were still God's people. They said, let's go back to Egypt. No, you're not going back to Egypt. Well, we don't want to go into the promised land. All right, then I'll let you die off in the desert. And it took 38 years. And I take it that the word picture there is, is that God will just let a Christian coast the rest of his life. And the Holy Spirit no longer convicts them to repentance. I think particularly he's talking about extreme judgment of God here. And it's discipline in the form of them being condemned to death. And therefore, there's no repentance from that. And that leads, okay, so letter D, this extreme discipline which leads to letter E, a sad, unproductive life that produced only thorns and thistles and in the end is worthless. And that's what he's talking about here. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance. Essentially, God is done with them under letter D. And then let's just read the rest of this. So he says in verse four, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the son of God to their own harm and holding him up in contempt. Isn't that exactly what the Corinthian believers were doing? Holding up the blood and body of Christ in contempt? We don't care about that. It was totally in disregard. And he said, then verse 7, for the land has drunk the rain and often falls on it. That land that has done that produces a crop useful for those to whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. Now notice that it's the same land, two different results. You can let the blessing of the rain of God come on you and you can cultivate a good crop and you can then receive a blessing of God. And they could have gone into the promised land, but they didn't. The Corinthian believers could have gone on farther for Christ, but they didn't at that time. But, verse 8, if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless. Remember, that's that word, adakimos, that the Apostle Paul used about being disqualified, set aside, no longer eligible for the race, and near to being cursed. Not cursed, but near to being cursed. And in its end, it is to be burned. And so I take that that this undisciplined Christianity maintains ongoing immaturity, which breeds an ongoing lack of discernment, which allows you to walk in disobedience to God, in carelessness, so that God then begins to discipline you, and in some cases, extreme discipline, to the point that if you have fallen away, it is now impossible to you return, for you to return to repentance because it's over. I'm done with you. 
and he takes you home, and there at the Bema seat, 1 Corinthians 3, your works are tried, but you on your soil, from the rain that has come from God, you have wasted it, and you have only grown thorns and thistles, and when it is tried by fire, it burns up, and there's nothing to show for it, and so therefore, letter E, is a sad, unproductive life that produced only thorns and thistles, and in the end is worthless. That means it is near to being cursed and burned up. That means there is no reward. There is no well done, good and faithful servant. And you'll say to me, but I'm glad I get to get into heaven. I'm glad you get to get into heaven too. But I'm going to tell you something. We really underestimate, we underthink, we underrecognize the reality of what it's going to be to stand before our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and to have thorns and thistles for the results of our Christianity burned up and to have nothing. And You wasted my blood and my body? You had every opportunity to produce from the good rain and to receive a blessing and to bear fruit, and you wasted it because you wanted the crunchy with the vanilla pudding and the chocolate pudding and the Cool Whip on top, and that's what you cared about, and you dissed my body and my blood? Are you kidding me? And so you're sick, and so you die. I I don't know how else to take it. And I think at that point, we will have a perspective of the reality of what it means to have wasted our lives. And that's why I think it says in the book of Revelation, at that point, somewhere at that point, every tear then will be wiped away from our eyes. Everything will be made right and restored right. But there will be the reality that the grace of our Lord Jesus and his shed blood and his body and the substitutionary death of Christ was in essence left undone for us. We, we believed it for salvation, but we didn't believe it for the good works that come in salvation. I hope that helps understand that passage a little bit. Uh, let's let our eyes go now to the rest of the passage. Thankfully, he now continues with words of encouragement. So we've had words of warning, but now we have words of encouragement. It's verse 9 to the end of verse 12. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. See, he's still talking to these believers. We feel sure of better things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish. There's that same word. Started out in 511, dull of hearing, 612, sluggish. Same word translated two different English words, but imitators, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise, promises. And that's the end of that warning passage. And so what he does is he gives words of encouragement following these strong words of warning about this extreme discipline that can come from God for believers. The first thing he does, letter A, is he brings words of affirmation. He brings a word of affirmation. Look what he says. He says in verse 9, though we speak in this way, these strong words reminding you to be careful uh, of the adakimas, don't, don't be worthless or disqualified. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, he says, beloved. I think the NIV, the NIV says, dear friends. 
He wants them to know that he loves them. He's been speaking strong words of warning to them, and immediately he flips it, and he brings words of encouragement, and the first thing he does is he wants them to know how much they mean to him. Do you know what it's like to have a spiritual leader express words of love and affirmation to you? I hope that you feel it from your pastor at some level. I try to communicate words of love and joy and affirmation. I love our church. I love you as our congregation. I mean, it happens to me sometimes. I'll, I'll be at a pastor's conference or I'll be on our Bible college campus and a Christian leader, another pastor, maybe a pastor friend who's older, more mature than I. Uh, one friend, he's a big old burly guy and he has whiskers and he comes and he gives me a big bear hug and he kisses me on the cheek always. And he always gets tears in his eyes. And he just says, Brother Van, I love you so much. That's what he's doing. He's getting his arms around him. I've been beating on you here with a stick. I've been warning you about this extreme discipline. Now, beloved, come here and let me hug you. Let me hold you. Let me tell you how much you mean to me. Words of affirmation. The author assures them of his personal care for them. My dear friends. Then he moves to a word about their salvation. Look what he says. Beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. He doesn't say what those things are. The author knows that he has hit them hard with this warning. He now follows up with confident words affirming their testimony of salvation. I know that the grace of our Lord Jesus is present in you. Your salvation has been at work in you. And I warned you that even as a church, we have warnings in the letters to the churches in Revelation that a church can be set aside. Christians can be set aside. But I know better for you, your salvation is at work in you and it's not going to happen to you. I have confidence in your salvation. Verse 10, he goes on with commendation, a word of commendation. Verse 10, for God is not unjust. He's going to remind them, listen, you don't have to worry about God making a mistake and disciplining the wrong person. God is not unjust. So as to overlook your work, and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. So not only had they had a reputation of serving the saints, but at some level, they were still serving the saints. And his point is, I think, referenced in chapter 10, verses 32 through 34, and there he says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, that's when they got saved, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward coming. This is commendation. See, they were, in the outworking of their actual salvation, had ministered to those who were being persecuted to the point that it involved the plundering of their own property and they did it joyfully. Why? Because they could sing a little chorus like this. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Only believers think like that. Non-believers don't think like that. That's how they think. And he said... I commend you because you gave yourself away to your brothers and sisters in Christ, and you even still do that. You could write in the margin there of letter C, 1 John 3, 14. 1 John 3, 14. 
1 John 3.14 says this, um, with confidence you can know that you are saved. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brethren. We love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. John holds up as one of the tests of our salvation, our love for the body of Christ. And he's commending the Hebrew believers that the outworking of their salvation is obvious as they show their love for the body of Christ. He goes on then to give a word of motivation, verse 11, a word of motivation. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness. That's a strong word, earnestness. The NIV says to show diligence. Be earnest about this. Be serious about this. Show diligence. We desire, and he's trying to motivate them. Be earnest to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish. There it is again. That word sluggish, already translated dull in 511, means indifferent. Indifferent. It actually literally means lazy. It means don't be lazy. Don't be indifferent here. Care about this. This is really not about the pudding at the supper table. This is about something much more important. And so he does not want them to be lazy, and he's trying to motivate them. And he motivates them with a word of imitation, verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish, but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises I think he's talking about the Hall of Fame in Hebrews chapter 11, where we're going. This is all going to chapter 11, where he can hold up for them. This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like to follow Christ. This is what it looks like to live by faith and not by sight. And he starts with Old Testament saints, and he ends up with New Testament saints who get sawn asunder and pulled apart and stoned to death. This is imitate their faith and imitate their patience. You see, they had to wait. It says of Abraham that he never did get to see with his own eyes on earth the earthly promise of the promised land. But they were driven by even a higher calling, a heavenly home, a heavenly dwelling, whose maker was not the hands of men, but is God. And so he's encouraging them, pushing them. Strong word of extreme discipline followed up by a warm word of encouragement. I expect more from you. I know that your salvation, I even see it outworking in you right now. God is not going to have to put this kind of discipline on you where you fall away in disobedience and in carelessness and in immaturity and disregard for the very body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ to the point that he's done with you and there's no returning to repentance. I think it is a serious thing to be undisciplined and indifferent about our Christian walk. What do you think? I think that's our only conclusion. The whole passage, he's begging them to not be dull, to not be sluggish, to get rid of the milk bottle, to go on to maturity I think it's a scary thing how many of us have been walking with the Lord for decades and we're still sucking a milk bottle. You need to start worrying about the discipline of the Lord, even onto the extreme discipline of the Lord, that there would be opportunity for repentance to move on to maturity if God permits it for you. 
I would say as of today, he will. I mean, it's a sobering wake-up call, isn't it? How serious it is to just be careless about the finished work of Christ and its ramifications in my life and what God wants to do with me in my Christian walk. Number two, are you dealing with the natural bent towards laziness in the Christian life? That's what he says. You, verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish. Stop being lazy and be imitators of their faith and their patience. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? That is not a sluggish runner. His point is, don't be dull, don't be sluggish. So run that you may obtain it. That's the word diligence. That's the word earnestness. So run that you may obtain it. Be earnest. So I do not, of his own testimony, run aimlessly. I don't beat the air like a shadow boxer or run aimlessly, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified, adakimas, set aside, disqualified, stepped on the line, you're out. You're no longer useful. I think it's a strong word, but it's also an encouraging word today. By God's grace, may we demonstrate a deepening understanding of the ramifications of the finished work of Christ in our lives and that we would continue to grow deeper in the things of God and fulfill the plan of blessing. And as the rain of God's blessing falls on our soil, we would bear good fruit, not thorns and thistles, to be cast aside, worthless, and near being cursed, wasting all of the work of the atonement on ourselves. We go to heaven... It's going to be disappointing. It all burned up. I wasted the opportunities that I had. How sad that would be. That God would accomplish his purposes in our churches, our prayer. And that we would be fruitful, productive Christians, not a dakimas, disqualified. Let's stand in closing prayer. And so, Father, we bow humbly before you this morning, challenged by this incredible passage of Scripture and its complexity, trying to understand what it looks like when believers fall away and and they are, are wasting the finished work of Christ. They lose even in extreme discipline their opportunity to return to repentance. Father, would you help us to have good soil that produces good fruit, and that at the end of our race that we run with intensity and earnestness and diligence without being lazy, that we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant, that our salvation will work itself out in us with productivity and blessing, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.